0: You know we all have a diary and we actually have all our meetings and all our other events in there but we very rarely lock aside time for personal exercise and I, uh, I wrote that back then it's been pretty much a gospel of mine I guess a foundation that I think you should in your diary every week regardless of who you are whether you're an entry-level administrator or the highest level chief executive you should in your diary allocate some time for yourself whether that's exercise or whether it's doing something else but something just for you.
1: Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the active CEO podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole.
2: On this episode of the Active CEO podcast, we're talking about recruiting talent, leadership performance, and the life of a remarkable man who has been at the cutting edge of the sports industry for the last four decades. He's a man of integrity, respect, trust, and a sharp eye for detail when it comes to ensuring people have the best chance of securing that dream job they desire. Sport has been a real passion completing a Bachelor of Physical Education at the University of Western Australia and a Masters of Education at the University of Sydney. He has also studied Applied Personal Consulting, HR, at Deakin University. His career in sport took a giant leap in 1985 after being a Sport and Recreation Officer at the Australian National University and Macquarie University, when he was appointed the National Executive Director at Netball Australia. He then put the pedal to the metal with a highly successful tenure as the CEO and event director at the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix. Sporting events are special, and our guest was fortunate to lead the delivery of five World Championship events, including three Motorcycle Grand Prix's, the 1992 International Six Days Enduro, and the 1988 Coca-Cola World Youth Nipple Championships. The 1987 Confederation of Australian Sport, Sport Administrator of the Year, is the founder and director of Sports People. The world's first online job board for sport and is now the number one place to find sport fitness aquatics recreation and leisure jobs we are delighted to introduce you to the sport recruit, uh, sport recruitment professional robert mcmurtry robert welcome to the show
0: thank you nice to be here
2: and i believe you've just uh, got back from a swim this morning so still keeping nice and fit there
0: yeah, try to. We, uh, I guess, as you get older, I, th- I seem to be working a lot harder. But the uh, that is uh, in, in exercise, not necessarily in life. But uh, yeah, I think it's always important. It's funny you were just talking there about uh, my career, and I remember writing an article in 1984 about um, the need to. You know, we all have a diary, and we actually have all our meetings and all our other events in there, but we very rarely lock aside time for personal exercise and I uh, I wrote that back then there it's been pretty much a gospel of mine, I guess, a foundation that I think you should in your diary every week, regardless of who you are, whether you're an entry level administrator or the highest level chief executive, you should in your diary allocate some time for yourself, whether that's exercise or whether it's doing something else, but something just for you.
2: It's so relevant and, you know, that... That importance of looking after yourself and prioritising. I think everyone says oh, I'm so time poor, but it's really just deciding or making those choices about what is a priority and what's going to help you perform the best in what you do in work and what and your your life at home.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I you know, I mean, we all work pretty long hours, and unfortunately, seem to be working more and more hours these days than less. And uh, I think. You're not a great value to your employer if you're just constantly tired. So you need some mental time out, whether that's uh, uh, swimming, running or just simply meditating or just going have a coffee, turn your phone off and do something by yourself.
3: And Robert, is that something that you've just learnt through experience or somebody taught you that concept or something from the education?
0: Yeah, I I think uh, it's something I've learnt Uh, Through age to be honest with you. I guess when I I was younger You know you're talking there about uh, education when I was doing my master's degree. I was I was working full-time I had a second job Um, My wife we just had a baby our first baby Uh, and I was studying uh, three nights a week so uh, But I I, it's you know, we all get very very busy during those early stage and mid-stage career uh, and I think uh, I learned a long time ago that I wasn't a great value to my family particularly or my employer uh, If I just worked 80 hours a week uh, and didn't do anything else on the side. So family's always been a really important part to, of my fabric uh, and and Exercise or just well-being has also been a foundation uh, of everything I've ever done
3: and so could you just um, maybe take us back to when you were growing up as a kid and um you know, you were constantly active. Was it throwing throwing a ball against a wall or kicking, kicking a football with your mates and so forth? Um, how how did that sort of shape shape who you are now?
0: Yeah, well, we grew up in a very different time. I mean, I've got four grandchildren now, so I can, uh, you know, they certainly don't go out and play on the road uh, like we used to uh, when I was a kid because the roads, Woi uh, Woi in the 1960s were pretty much dirt and we'd all go and play cricket. We'd be down, it, it was pretty much a full-on, active lifestyle you know it was pre-technology so I mean kids as soon as you got home from school uh you'd be down at the local bars or you'd be out in the football field you'd be over the athletics field you'd be doing something all the time um so and I uh my brother saw me swim one day my eldest brother I'm I'm one of four uh, children and the youngest and my brother said oh you should go along to the pool and uh Mr Vickery the new coach down there might put you in a squad and uh, I went along for a trial and uh, I started swimming so that was the beginning of a, of a, a quite a, a well actually a lifetime love of swimming but also quite an intense period of competitive swimming when I was younger.
3: And tell me nowadays you, you said to us beforehand that you'd been swimming this morning where, where do you swim and, and how do you go about your exercise now?
0: Uh, Dremoyne up here in Sydney and uh, uh, I do two squads a week maybe three and uh, it's a lovely pool it's the same pool actually that I swam at uh, when I was a kid uh, 50 years ago so hasn't changed much to be honest with you It's one of those beautiful harbourside pools Um, salt water which is always good for flotation and uh, um, and you know the, the the other people in my squad uh they they uh, participate in some of the open water swims so along with my son i've done a bit of open water swimming here in sydney which is quite fun
2: yeah fantastic so what was life like starting out in the sport industry and and how did you get your first job
0: uh i know actually it's funny you know uh, as a recruiter i look back and i wonder i ask that question actually a lot uh, how did i get that first job but um, my very first job, uh, when I finished teachers college, I was unemployed and it was a real sh- a real shock to me to be honest with you. I, I uh, didn't have a job from the time I graduated uh, in October uh, and I, I was applying and in those days you'd pop an application in the mail and wait for three weeks for somebody to write back to you possibly. Um, and uh, I got an interview with the Australian National University. They had just set up a brand new, Sport and Recreation Centre that you, you might know, Craig, um, uh, at the university. There, it's the it's the old centre now. But um, yeah. I was the very first recreation officer there, and we I was given the mandate to basically create the recreation program for the student and academic family, but also for local community. And I had um, two years there; was absolutely. Fantastic because there was nothing before me, you know, it was absolutely blue sky and uh, We did everything in fact, we ran the very first aerobic class I remember the Canberra Times writing a, an article about uh, What the university population is up to now? They're doing a strange thing called aerobics uh, And it was the very first aerobics class in Canberra one of the very first in Australia, I think um, to give you an idea how uh, aged I am Um but, uh, we, you know, we had massive uptake. Uh, the student population was really engaged. We ran everything you could possibly imagine. I think we had 60 aerobic classes every week um, uh, for that period of time. We introduced uh, coaching programs. We had the very first athletics carnival, very first swimming carnival, um, and then some very, very good people came after me. And, and now, you know, that university sports sector is a really strong, vibrant, buoyant uh, career sector for people looking for jobs in sport management and um, and and really does play a very important part of the life of the university population
3: it sounds like you hold it very dear to your heart
0: yeah they were good years actually yeah. um, I I've, but I only had a diploma of teaching at that stage so I really wanted to get a degree and there were no degrees on this side on the eastern states that and University of WA ran uh, a a degree course where you could take your diploma and upgrade to a degree. So we were called the Eastern Staters. There's a a big chunk of those. The alumni, some of whom I still see and um, know. Uh, we all went over, and we were taught by uh, some luminaries like John Bloomfield and Brian Blanksby. Uh, you would know Brian uh, from a from a swimming background. Yep. Um. Uh. Some some of the. Great names in sport management uh, were over there in those foundation years, and then I was lucky enough to come back and pick up a job at Macquarie University, where I worked for five years in a very similar role in community recreation. <clears throat> but to answer your question, why did I? How did I get that job? Um, I actually did ask my employer. I said, "What was it on the day?" and he said, "You know, we just felt that you were the most likable on the day, and you had the qualifications and the and the skills." and It's funny that now, uh, all those years later, um, and only a couple of weeks ago, I read an article from Harvard which actually said that of a survey of six and a half thousand interviews, the person that was the most likable was the person most likely to get the job.
2: Hmm. cannot be underestimated, you know, the power of, you know, do you like your employer and does the employer like the potential like employee? And, you know, so it's, it's fantastic to hear that. I want to go back a little bit here. The To have a clean slate in your first job, what an amazing experience because you know, most people come in and all the structures are in place and the cultures are developed. So for you, you got that opportunity to develop your own thing. That must have been pretty cool.
0: Actually, it's a, uh, a little bit of a pattern, to be honest with you, because when I, I look back on that job was the uh, Greenfields, the, the brand new centre had only opened. Actually, it hadn't opened. And when I arrived, they were still putting the final toucher to it. Um, when I went to Macquarie University, they had a, quite a, a good club competition program, but no active recreation program. And again, I was given the opportunity there to create the program from scratch. Uh, And it was a much bigger population and a much larger catchment area. So not only did we provide classes and activities across everything that you could possibly imagine in that physical activity space, uh, we also had a mandate or I asked for permission during the non-peak periods to actually run school holiday programs and school programs as long as it didn't impact adversely on the membership you know on the university population so it was pretty much greenfields when I went to Macquarie and uh, when I was fortunate enough to get the job at Netball Australia um, again it was a green greenfield space because they'd had an administrator before me but I was the very first national executive director and that was a title before CEO um, and uh, I was given absolutely a, a, a clean slate again and a, a mandate to develop and grow the sport and, and my jobs after that uh, and motorcycling and now of course as a recruiter have been first in marketplace and uh, greenfields. I've never thought of that before until just now so uh, it is definitely a pattern of the jobs that I've actually held.
2: So you must have had you know, a natural ability from an entrepreneur point of view and showed those, you know, just natural leadership talents?
0: Well, I've, I've always thought that uh, um, any idea is not a bad idea. And uh, I remember years and years ago, I, I managed, I, I went out and started managing athletes and uh, I managed, I had the great uh, pleasure of, of managing Liz Ellis, the Australian nipple captain uh, from her very uh, early career, when she was first uh, appointed and selected into the Australian netball team, right through to her retirement. And, in fact, Liz is the only person I managed. So I decided it wasn't a good idea to to compete against those other big players. So I I just managed Liz alongside some other things I was doing. And um, Liz often said that uh, I had 100 ideas. 99 of those were really bad, but one of them was actually really good. So (laughs) That was obviously... uh,
3: Managing Liz yeah. was the really good
2: idea.
0: <laughs> I think that's why she was implying, so, yeah. yeah.
2: And you know, so what has been the biggest change that you've seen in the sport industry from say leading a national sport organisation in the 1980s to what we see now?
0: I think the professionalisation of it, uh, which is something I hope that we've actually made a contribution to. So when we started, um, when we started our recruitment agency back in 1996, there were, there were no other agencies at all op- operating in that space. So, that, again, that was Greenfields, and brand new, and it took probably five years for us to get the market to understand what we actually did as a recruiter, but um, there was a greater tendency in those years to employ people who were mates of a mate, uh, who were former players, uh, who may have been coaches, but they weren't professional sports administrators or sport management professionals. So what, what I'd like to think now is that all those years later, that one of the biggest changes is that there are now degrees and you can actually obtain a qualification in sport management. You know, most of my generation started in physical education. In fact, if you were to do a survey of the vast majority of people over 60 that are still working in sport more than likely their foundation degree will be physical education because there was no sport management degree. The very first sport management degree came out of University of Western Sydney uh, in 1987. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, a, it's still a relatively new discipline. So I, I think one of the significant changes is that professionalisation. So you can now write on your work. Uh, immigration card as you're departing Australia or uh, coming into Australia, what your occupation is. You can say sport management professional. Um, 30 or 40 years ago, that wouldn't have made a lot of sense.
3: And that sports management degree that you talk about started in 87 through um, Sydney. Where do you see uh, the improvements in that area Um, that we continue to fine tune? What's needed in the marketplace is...
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I've seen a couple of evolutions yeah. of that. Um, it started off in a very um, theoretical academic discipline, you know, so you were learning about sociology and history of sport, um, all those sort of foundation things that you would normally do in an undergraduate degree, through to a number of universities now um, still having those platform subjects, mm. but now introducing a lot of other people who are practitioners working in the sport so uh, i sit on the external advisory committee for about five universities uh, in the sport management area and we provide advice to them on curriculum development Mm -hmm. and you know when i go to those committee meetings there's others who have worked in sport for a long time that are not necessarily academic but they certainly understand what sport's about so um, you know those that's been a significant change. There are a number of universities now who have shifted back from being really academic to being a much more applied. Mm. So you know there's a, there's a greater emphasis on professional development. I think you know years ago you'd only had to do forty hours professional development. most of the degrees now have one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty hours of professional development as a base requirement.
3: And do you feel that it's a a two-way street? Do sporting organisations need to put more effort into um, being part of the education process?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's incumbent on the industry to be an employer of people who actually have those as foundation degrees. Um, Having said that, of course, if you look at a a large-scale commercial sporting organisation, they are quite sophisticated in terms of their organisation structure. So those people with a sport management degree, there's only a certain number of jobs. So if you have a, you know, in 2018, 2019, there are jobs for um, media managers. So, you know, do you need a sport management degree for that? Probably not. Mm. Um, There are accountants and finance. There's the corporate governance side. There's clearly the high performance and sports side. So uh, coaching discipline. And the coaching qualification is important, but um, l- large scale organisations these days, the opportunities for people to find work in sport is so much greater than it was 30 years ago. Mm. Um, so,
3: I just get the feeling uh, from my experience that we're seeing a lot of students being generated through the university system, and we're probably not seeing the jobs actually available within the marketplace. And so, how do we sort of find that balance as we go forward?
0: I think that's always been a problem, to be honest with you. If you look at the Australian Graduate Careers Council and uh, the career uptake, what they do every year is they actually do a a graduate career placement survey. So it shows where the graduates are uh, working, if they are working. And a few years ago, it was quite easy to pick up the sports studies, sports management, but they've dropped it all now into humanities. So it's really hard to segment that out. But humanities, as a discipline of which sport management is one of those subsectors, tends to be one of the uh, lowest-employed, 12 months, 18 months, two years after do- after a degree. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and what also is happening is one of the highest where people decide to go and do a master's degree. But then the surveys of the master's degrees uh, is also the same pattern that one, two, three years after they complete a master's degree, uh, they also are, by and large, the most um, uh, likely to be unemployed or not working in their particular academic area. So I I think it is a problem, in other words, that we're spurting out you know, thousands of uh, graduates every year, but we don't actually have the number of jobs in the sector. Mm. And would
3: you say it's a fair comment that uh, the sports industry would be a fairly low-paying sector to work in?
0: By and large, um, and a lot of the surveys that we uh, have done show that within sport, uh, the most consistent things about salaries are their inconsistencies. So, uh, you know, that's been a pattern. And the Graduate Careers Council data also shows where humanity sits within the profile. So I think of the 32 industry sectors, humanity sits in the, in the bottom three, four or five. So a first year out graduate in a sport management role would be earning a lot less than another 25 or 28 of the other sector graduates. So it is, it is by and large quite low. But at the other end, the chief executive Then, what I have seen over the last 20 and 30 years is a, a, a significant shift up. Mm. So, you know, we are now becoming competitive. We are now able to attract people with significant corporate backgrounds and corporate skills to run these organisations, which are, you know, medium-sized businesses, some of them. Yeah. Uh, but, but by and large, you know, if you're working for a small state sporting federation, uh, which when you look at the pyramid of sport participation, um, that's where they, you know, there's this. It's a huge number of organisations in that below the little peak. They are fairly small organisations. You know, they might have a ED, an executive director. They might have a coaching director, and they may have someone that is in the office admin. But then, if you scale up. To the NRL or AFL, Cricket Australia, Tennis Australia—you know—you're talking about big, big businesses.
2: Yeah. yeah, definitely. So, talking about businesses, how would you describe the people recruitment business model, and and what has been your the secret to your success over the last twenty-two years?
0: The early days, we were the very—we were the only ones. So, our success was there was no one else doing it. So, first, uh, we,
3: first to market is what they say, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, first to market. And, and, you know, we often have discussions in our team now about what 2018 looks like compared to what 1990, you know, the 90s and 2000s looked like. So pretty much through until about late, two, probably about 2008, we had the market uh, exclusively to ourselves as a specialist. So the, what that looked like was we spent our early years explaining to people what a recruiter did, why it was valuable to have us involved and how we can value add to their recruitment piece, not just through the appointment of that person but also provide some good advice to them in terms of the organizational structure writing their position descriptions, creating a position description because most organizations didn't have that, having employment contracts because most organizations didn't have that. The uh, HR and IR expertise of sporting organizations in the 90s and 2000s was pretty basic to be honest with you. So uh, not only were we recruiting, we're also doing a lot of other value add stuff in the IR and HR space. Um, We then had a a number of competitors and, you know, we've seen people come and go. We've seen us lose business to some of them. We've seen, by and large, most of the employers that have gone out and used another agency, I'd say that more than 85%, 90% have come back to us next time. So they've they've tasted what the others do and then uh, fortunately they've come back to us, which I'm very happy about. But, you know, it is a smaller pie right now, too. Um, there are other ways to recruit. One of those is the sports people jobs market. So, you know, it has an audience now of millions. Uh, it has a new uh, format that some people would have seen, the new uh, website particularly and the new way to register. So significant number of organisations now just use that because it's such an effective and cost-effective way to advertise a job. And then... Others continue to use a recruiter, and we still are. Uh, if we use the metrics of the vol- the number of jobs and the range of jobs that we recruit, and the range of employers that we work with, but the most important is the number of jobs. We still are by and large the number one recruiter in this country and in New Zealand. But there are other there are other very reputable organisations working in this space, and I'm. I'm pleased about that in many ways because, you know, we created the opportunity for those organisations to come in and, and they do a pretty good job. You know, I'm not going to criticise them. They're good people. I know them. Uh, they're out there ecking out a living and by and large, they do a good job. And uh, and I'm happy, though, always to have a client who has used us, used them, and then those come back to us. So I'd never say no to a client coming back to us.
3: Yeah, It's a great attitude to have, isn't it? It's a real growth mindset and I think there's anything Craig and myself have learnt through this process is um, most successful people have that growth mindset. They're open, they're willing to learn and, and willing to move forward.
0: Yeah, well, we, we have made a number of changes in the last couple of years. We, we now come under the People Recruitment Group banner and People Recruitment Group uh, is, is me and uh, my other my partner, my wife uh, is the other director. So we we've set up People Recruitment Group and underneath it there are two specialist divisions. One is Sports People Recruitment, which is effectively the the brand that we've been running since 1995, 96, But it's now called Sports People Recruitment as opposed to purely sports people. And in 2019, we're launching Fashion People, which is a fashion and retail brand. And we also have a generalist recruiter called People Recruitment. So those three specialists or two specialists and one generalist sit under the People Recruitment group banner. Um, so there's been some changes to the way that we operate.
3: Wow, congratulations. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's exciting yep.
0: and, times. Yeah, and, and uh, not widely known is that we also sold the sportspeople jobs market uh, about six months ago. So sportspeople, as you will know it, uh, www.sportspeople.com.au is no longer owned by us. So we, uh, we as part of our overall long-term strategy, uh, we wanted to see if we could... Um, commercialize that and, and as a significant asset sell it and we were successful in doing that back in May.
3: Mm. Well, congratulations, It's fantastic news. And how's your fashion sense? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it's not mine, it's my daughter's actually, so she's a, <laughs> she's been a, a very senior executive in fashion and we've got a, a number of specialists, again, same thing that we've done, Craig, that, uh, you know, if you look at the people that work in, uh, the recruiters that work in sports people, I, I chose not to go out and get generalist recruiters. I chose to get people who, by and large, have actually worked in very senior level, senior roles in sport because they understand what sporting organisations go through. You know, you, we've got people who have been chief executive officers of, of National Sporting Federations, others that have worked at uh, the Coalface of Sport, others that have worked for uh, Karen in New Zealand, work in New Zealand Sport, Um, and the old Hillary Commission. So uh, that group is characteristics. The major characteristic or common characteristic of that group is that they all have worked in sport. Um, And for fashion people, we're going to do the same thing. We've got people who have worked in the fashion sector uh, and they'll be the recruiters. So they're they're, uh, fashion experts and we train them uh, to become recruiters or they're sport management experts and we train them to become recruiters.
3: And, and is that a hard process, to train somebody to, to pick up the recruitment side of it, so to speak?
0: It's part of the interview process, so mm-hmm. whenever we recruit, uh, it's part of the characteristic we're looking for, you know, in terms of their ability to be able to engage with people, um, to listen more than talk, uh, you know, to be a good judge of people. Uh, all those sorts of characteristics, so it's part of, it's part of our process in recruiting them. Uh, they may have been a chief executive officer of a national sporting federation but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the right sort of person to, to work for us so we we work through as a recruiter and determine what the key skills are and I I know what those skills and abilities that I'm looking for now and all of the team have that so I'm really I'm really happy with the team that we actually have they're here in Australia and New Zealand and you know we are proudly an organisation that operates in Australia and New Zealand. We don't have an ambition, and I I never had an ambition to be a recruiter in the US or a recruiter in Europe. We're very, very happy to provide the services that we provide to uh, the Australian and New Zealand market, and that's where we've lived for the last 30 years, and that's where we'll continue to live.
2: So let's dive into the recruitment world for a bit. What is the number one mistake that you see people making when one, they apply for a job, and two, during the interview process.
0: Well, uh, I've written quite a number of articles about this at our blog, uh, and one one of the primary mistakes that people make is they don't read the position description or the information. And certainly, with us, we provide. We're often asked, "How come you provide so much information?" Even the employers say to us. Gee, that position description is long, and our view is that we'd we'd rather provide more information than not enough information. So I think the first mistake candidates make is that they don't read the position description. And in two thousand and eighteen, it's very very easy to apply for a job. Just because you can apply doesn't mean you should apply. And I think uh, really a common mistake is that we see people applying for jobs that clearly they just don't have any suitability for. They haven't they haven't got any of the functional experiences that are articulated in the position description. Uh, they're a complete mismatch for what we're actually looking for. So I would encourage anybody that is applying for a job to take the time in reading the position description. If you're unsure on anything at all, ring the employer up or ring the recruiter up. Ask them about location, for example. We had a candidate just recently that was, you know, they, they said, I'm, o- I'm okay, I can relocate to Sydney. And we said, you have to relocate to Sydney. And then during the process, we requalified them three times. And then when they were finally offered the job, they said, uh, sorry, I can't relocate to Sydney. Um, so, so <laughs> you know, we, we even had it in writing that they, re- they would relocate to Sydney. So uh, there's a whole range of aspects that come up, you know, what the salary is, what the work hours are, um, even... If you're unsure on what the real two or three really key key points are that the employer is looking for just pick up the phone I mean a good recruiter should take the phone call and an employer should always list a person within the organization but so my first advice is don't apply for a job that is a complete mismatch with your qualifications because you're really doing yourself a disservice Mm.
2: So I find it uh, quite intriguing when we search for talent in sport, music, dance, art, etc. we create an audition to find the right people for the role or the team. However, when we are doing a hiring process for employees, we generally try to find talent through an interview, which is quite different to the environment that they're going to work in and is, is quite unnatural to a lot of people. In your opinion, have we got the recruitment process right in that we... Do the interview rather than audition, or could we be looking at a different model in the future?
0: Well, I think I think you are right in what you're saying there is that the interview room is a really artificial environment, and that's why an interview with a interview panel is only one part of the process. So if you if you in a sports people recruitment process or any any recruitment process it should have the application. Uh, it should have a screening interview with the consultant or the employer and that's much more conversational. So our screening processes would be a Skype call or a telephone call or a face-to-face meeting. And we would in a very conversational way talk about get you to tell us about yourself, tell us your story. and we'll ask a few questions uh, around some of the key competencies. So that's the first step. Then after that, we would make a decision on those candidates that fit the job brief because we will have actually prior to that step been briefed extensively by the client. So we understand exactly what they're looking for and what some of the challenges are and what the key attributes are. And then they would go through to an interview process. And I think you're right. That's where they go into this really artificial environment with you know, the panel sitting around, a structured interview process. But But you can make that sort of enjoyable and ask an oxymoron to go and enjoy an interview. But the reality is that if you structure an interview process so that it is conversational and you have an audition element, for example, you might give the candidate a pre-planned scenario so they actually get that question before they go in and they can stand up and they can do that presentation. There's an opportunity for the candidates to ask questions and the panel to ask questions and then, if they are, if there is a preferred candidate, you do more work. You do some reference checking, maybe you do psychometric profiling. But most importantly, for any appointment that we actually go through, we actually ask the preferred candidate and their the person to whom they're reporting. If it's a CEO to the chair, or if it's a social media manager to the uh, the comms manager they go out for a coffee That they have a, a outside of the interview room they go out they might have lunch they might have a cup of coffee and they actually just talk as a couple of human beings as the last step mm. so if you put all of those pieces together you've actually done as much as you physically can do to determine whether or not the person's going to fit within the organization
3: it's easy to see why you're successful at, at hiring recruiting I mean, it's just vital that uh, that people's skills are there.
0: Well, I think I think it is really important yeah. because if you make a mistake, and you know, you've put, all of us have seen mistakes in recruitment. It, it's a costly from a financial point of view, but it's also costly from a time point of view. You know, it can take for for some CEO roles or some high performers director, high, high performance director, coaching director roles, they might require three months notice. If it's a immigration process like we, you know, we still are able to bring people in even though the immigration rules in Australia are particularly onerous now, we still bring people in under, um, uh, under the new visa process but that could take six months to bring them in. So imagine if they come in and they're only there for a month and they're a failure. So you've got to make sure you get all those things right. And, and to, to give you an idea, there was a process that we ran last year for a. Actually, I don't mind telling you, it's the Royal Prince Alpha Yacht Club. We actually ran their racing race director, and we went through a recruitment process. We had a preferred candidate, but he happened to live in the UK, and they were an ex, they are an exemplary employer. They decided to fly Nick over, and because the decision was such a significant decision, they decided also to fly his family over, which included his wife and two kids. So they stayed in Sydney for a week, where he underwent a number of um, structured interviews and then informal interviews, including those things I've just been talking about. Uh, and then they made a job offer. But Nick, Nick, it took six months for Nick after the job offer for him to come to Australia through the and through a very easy immigration process. Yeah. So he was he was appointed in April, but didn't start until October. So imagine if you get it, if you imagine if you got that wrong yep. it would mean they'd have to go back to market and they would have been without a race director for nearly 12 months so it is a really it is vital important that you actually get this right
2: yeah i know with one of the roles that i was successful in getting i was flown in and i had 4 days there and they you know we kind of met for dinner and they gave me an opportunity to go and meet with anyone i liked in the organization and come back in 3 days and present how I would change the organisation, so I found that kind of probably the most enjoyable and the best way to find whether you fit there and whether you know they like who you are and where you want to lead to. So something. Well, it, and
0: it is a two-way street, and I often say that to candidates prior to their shortlist interview. Remember, you're going in there today for there's two things happening. One, they're assessing whether or not you're the right candidate, but importantly, you're assessing whether they're the right employer for you. You know, too too often you think it's the other way around, that we're always, as a candidate, always thinking that it's the employer that makes the choice. But in fact, the power is always in the hands of the candidate.
2: So what do you think are the biggest challenges leaders are likely to face over the next 10 to 20 years and what skill sets do you think are going to be invaluable for leaders to succeed?
0: I think there is a significant challenge in the organized sports sector if we're talking about sport as as uh, particularly and those national sporting federations that there's been a gradual shift away from highly organized sports towards more social participation so if you look at the participation rates right now in australia they tend to be more uh, swimming walking even sports like tennis have a high participation rate but they actually don't translate to active physical members of national sporting federation so the three of us can go for a swim we can go for a run we can go and play netball we can go and play touch football we can go and sail but none of those activities do we need to belong to a national sporting federation so Uh, It's been the conundrum of sport now for a while, how do we attract the social member and I know Craig's got a particular background in triathlon. I Probably triathlon is one of those strange ones where it's difficult for me to go and do a triathlon unless I'm actually competing in a triathlon event. Mm. So maybe, maybe you've got that covered, but there's a significant bulk of other organisations that uh, don't have the opportunity to be able to capture uh, all participants. So I think that's, that's certainly one of the really big issues. I think the other one is being able to deal and control emerging technology. So, you know, we... It's not so long ago that Facebook uh, wasn't around. You know, if I, I think back on my early career, uh, just the amount of technology we have now compared to then. You know, I remember my very first president of Netball Australia said, "Okay, when you send a letter, you post the letter out. You have to do a pink copy and you do a green copy, and we expect you to respond to everybody within ten days." <laughs> Uh, every every letter, every letter, you have to have a response within ten days. That was a benchmark that Deidre taught me. Um, could you imagine that now? If you actually sent me an email and I didn't respond within ten days, it see, would.
3: If you haven't done it in ten minutes, you're in trouble.
0: Well, that's right. That's so true, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I know that. Uh, and just yesterday, I was looking at something on one of our clients. There was some adverse social media. Uh, a little bit of trolling going on over a particular chief executive over something that had actually happened so you know You don't you can't control that stuff anymore. So uh, Even even those having a social media manager or having a media or communication strategist working for you But uh, but I think singularly for me it would be how do we as a national sporting organization? maintain our relevance maintain our uh, finances Uh, in an environment where our membership in pure numbers is decreasing. Mm. And then a second part of that is governments all around the world are starting to shift their funding away from high performance towards participation. Mm. Um, Australia wins one gold medal, and that's in the obesity stakes. And, you know, you look at the amount of money they spend on high performance sport every year, and if you track that, Uh, As more money is spent, as a nation, we've become more obese. And why is that? And what role can organized sport play in the reduction of obesity levels?
2: So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time?
0: That was, well it'll be this Saturday actually. So I'm swimming in the flat uh, um, Swim from Chinaman's Beach to Balmoral and back. Oh. That'll, be the first, that'll be the first time and that's in two days time.
2: How long is that swim?
0: Oh, it's, I'm, I'm the wimp, I'm only doing the two and a half kilometer swim, <laughs> uh, other, others do five and 10 but I, uh, I don't need to do that at my age. <laughs>
2: <sighs> what is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: Oh, actually, I've got a few of those. Where does the traffic jam start? But uh, I was thinking this morning, I was thinking this morning is why is I swim slower when I've got flippers on than when I when I don't have flippers on?
3: Oh, well, that's probably something Craig and myself can answer for you.
0: Yeah, good, good. I have no idea. I have to go, I, I go to the front of the squad, front of the team when I'm no flippers, but I have to go to the back of the team when I'm actually uh, have flippers on. it
2: uh, you can have a to chat offline around yeah. that one.
0: Yeah, yeah, fine. I'm, I'm looking forward to it.
2: So who's made the greatest impact on your career and why?
0: Oh, there's so many, to be honest with you. I, I mentioned my president at Netball Australia, Deidre Highland. Deidre was um, a wonderful, tolerant chair when I was only 29 years old and running netball uh, as a national sporting federation. And she, A, she gave me the opportunity to do that. And B, she taught me so much. Uh, but I look, I, I step back even further and say, my, my swim coach, I mean, if anybody's ever been an elite athlete, uh, that coach that works with you all the time, they're more than a coach. You know, they teach you all these other things about what, what is possible, what you can do and why you should do it. Uh, and later in life, a guy called Peter Burns who taught me that it, didn't, it doesn't matter what your cash flow is, uh, you can still run a business. And in those early years, when I had no cash flow, uh, I used to go and bury my head on his shoulder and say, I don't know how you've done this for so long. And his advice was, just make sure you have enough to cover the basics and it'll be okay. Just keep doing what you do and it will improve. And uh, he was right. And in fact, I had lunch with him on Sunday um, and I was laughing that we each had more than $20 in our wallet. So uh, yeah, he's been a great mentor to me over the last 30 years, Peter. Oh, that's fantastic.
2: So Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Some fantastic insights from when you started your sporting industry career, having an absolute clean slate, which I'm sure all of us would love to have at some point in our career. How you progressed through and you were able to, you know, use your entrepreneurial natural skills to create your career and to, I suppose, help define the sporting industry in Australia. Um, to see you take on challenges, you, you seem to have this ability to, there's no challenge too big, and your amazing insights into the way that you recruit people, how people can be more successful in the sport industry um, is, is quite, you know, it's quite inspiring. Yeah. And uh, we really thank you for you know, this opportunity and for sharing your story and your great advice and we look forward to seeing uh, your business continue to grow. And to make a big difference in the sporting industry across Australia and New Zealand. So, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: Yeah, thank you, Robert.
3: On today's Active CEO Wellness Tip, we're talking about the quick fix. So, we all recognize the fact that sometimes you are just under the pump, you just can't fit it in. But let me tell you, you've got to do something.
2: Oh, you've got to be prepared to allocate and schedule each day of the week you know some time to ensure that your mind and body are ready to deliver that peak performance in the workplace but we all know we have tight schedules family commitments a lot of you travel quite often and it cannot be underestimated how beneficial doing just even something really short intense sessions can be rather than saying oh you know what i don't have time today yeah absolutely that that's the easy way out if you're not committed to what you're trying to do
3: if you're not consistent with it yeah, I get it, but you've just got to get something done. And we talk about here that you can do some short, high-intensity burst of activity uh, in a fairly structured sense. But you know what? I also like those um, after-work, quick um, social soccer game or frisbee game or something like that. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you can move out at halftime, whatever you need to do
2: but you still get that burst of, of um, endorphins from the exercise. Yeah, I know when I've been away traveling, sometimes I've been at a hotel and I've just gone, you know what, I've got 20 minutes here, so I'll just go upstairs, I'll jump on the exercise um, bike and, and just pedal for you know 20 minutes. I might start with 10 minutes easy and then I might alternate 30 seconds hard, 30 seconds easy and it just gets me started, gets me going and I feel pumped. So it's, really, it's good that you
3: bring that up because I know that when, I in that when I'm in that situation, I'll go to the hotel gym and I try and do something that I wouldn't normally do at home. So I never use a rowing machine at home, but that's when I'll use the rowing machine there because I know that it's something that I I'm, I'm get good bang for
2: buck because I don't have a lot of experience in it. Been a, another engaging and really exciting podcast there with Robert McMurtry from the sports people and people met recruitment group uh, you know we kicked off at the at the beginning talking about still being involved in swimming and making it a really really important aspect of his day. Yeah
3: absolutely it's really interesting when we talk to people like Robert who are massively successful over a long career um, but he was quite humble and very keen to talk about his early days and how he got his first job at ANU and how he was presented with a, a green field i think is how he described it and how he wanted to um, build his his um, way of thinking from there it was, it was really good to see
2: not many people get the opportunity to, to go clean slate here you go developed your program and he got that as he said at anu macquarie university and then pretty much happened again when he went to nipple australia become their first ever uh, national executive director i think was the term and mm. it's now a ceo role and then obviously the same again with the Australian uh, Motorcycle Grand Prix. Uh, pretty special.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing that really struck me was he just spoke um, eloquently about his mentors, the people that had helped him along his way. So once again, that humble type person sort of
2: shines through by giving credit to people that he had tapped into and shared time with. You could really feel the passion inside around you know, helping people building that team and ensuring that everyone had the opportunity to grow with inside their organizations. Mm-hmm, absolutely and even now as they progress forward and expand out
3: in their, um, their online recruitment business, um, he mentioned that his daughter was involved with the fashion side of it so something I guess a green field once again and, and a real innovator and a real entrepreneur in those areas.
2: Oh, a true entrepreneur and we've seen that right throughout his whole career and to be able to establish the first ever sports recruitment online business which I've now on sold so that's the market job market that is on online the sports people job market and now to just you know focus purely on the clients they work with and ensuring that organization and businesses have the right CEOs and the right leaders in the right roles and expanding that as you said into fashion people and then just in general people recruitment um, exciting for someone that's had a 40-year career
3: yeah absolutely and I'm, I'm really keen to see how this progresses in the future
2: He also gave some great tips around uh, that interviewing well and setting yourself up to ensure that you put yourself in the right position for recruitment and ensuring that you're actually applying for the right job. And I think at times, you know, a lot of people, they just apply, they go, oh, I need a job, so I'll just apply rather than actually thinking it through and being really passionate about what they do. Another one of the aspects I really enjoyed was we talked about whether auditioning or interviewing and and trying to make it as natural as possible to the environment they're going to be working in. Um, So, you know, Ben, it's another great episode of the Active CEO podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong.
1: Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG2Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the nrg to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.